1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There's a new list on our website by Andy Green called 50 Genuinely Horrible Albums by Brilliant Artists. There's some very obvious stuff on there. There's some stuff that is controversial. There's some stuff that is surprising. And above all, there is stuff that is awful. Although I do disagree with some of Andy's picks, as I will tell him. I do have Andy here to go through the list. We'll probably just hit the first 25 today and return to the rest later. I did notice some commonalities between these albums. One of them is contractual obligations, artists making albums that they didn't really want to make that never seemed to yield anything good.
0: Yes, there was a lot of bands at the end of their run that owed one more record and just kind of shat one out. The 80s famously were a tough time for veteran acts. It's not just the 80s, it's the mid-80s. I found this over and over again. There's so many times I would pick out a group's first album and it would be between like 80 80- 6 and 88 or something. This little window where the drum machines and the synths were so just god-awful. There was
1: this feeling like you can't do what you actually do. You have to do some synthed out version of what you do. It ended up with some ridiculous results.
0: They'd see Rod Stewart or Steve Winwood or Elton John with these giant hits that are on MTV, and they wanted that too. It was jumping on trend bandwagons that aren't really yours, like trying to be grunge, or trying to be new wave, or trying to be disco. And failing, and just being a, just being an obvious carpetbagger. Lack of sincerity, commercial desperation, or giving a producer too much power. You bring on some hotshot producer and have him make the record, and it's going to sound generic and not like you.
1: There's two albums that involve Pete Townsend on this list. It's not that Pete Townsend is a uniquely awful artist; far from it. I think it's just your own knowledge of The Who and Pete Townsend that led you, that unfortunately led to, to picking on them a little bit. So the first of them is at number 50, and It's Hard from 1982. On the cover is The Who <laughs> standing around a little kid playing an obscure Atari arcade game called Space Duel. And I think it might be an anti-war statement. What's the war, anti-war song on that album?
0: It's called I've Known No War.
1: your standards, these albums that are horrible, in your words, can have several great songs on them
0: it seems. It's just these few ones at the top of the list. I'm a diehard Who fan. I love Pete Townsend's music solo and with The Who. And in the early 80s, he did a lot of great stuff. I love Empty Glass, I love all the best cowboys of Chinese eyes, I even love face dances. But what was clear was Pete was a heroin addict, the Who were always on tour, and he only had so many great songs, and he used the best ones on his solo records. And by the time of It's Hard, he was just really tapped. So besides Eminence Front, which is a masterpiece, I love that song, and I guess Athena is okay, and was a minor hit. It's just bottom shelf drag that should never have been.
1: They never play it live, but it was on the radio even in the 90s and 2000s. Eminence Front obviously is a really cool and atypical Who song. I think what's cool about it is they could not have possibly done that song when Keith Moon was in the band because he couldn't have kept still long enough to hold down a sort of funky groove like that. So that's obviously a good song. Again, the song I've Known No War was believed to be a good song, and it has very labored upon lyrics,
0: and it didn't enter
1: the pantheon the way they thought it would.
0: I mean, and- Cry If You Want is a decent song. I'll give them that.
1: Rosy red. No one ever your bed. Number 49, you know what? This really is a bad album. Billy Joel's The Bridge, 1986. It's just tapped out. There's very little there.
0: Yeah, and what Billy told me about it when I interviewed him about 10 years ago, it was that he had a daughter, he was in love, he'd been touring like crazy and recording like crazy, and he just wasn't that focused on his music. And even he admits it was half-assed, which is why for Stormfront, he just changed everything around and got rid of Phil Ramone, had a whole new sound. But that said, it's at 49 because the song A Matter of Trust is so great. There is a live version in
1: which Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen uh, trade off vocals on it. And uh-huh. That That is a, a very classic version of the song. Was that a benefit for... Was it for Obama or
0: Hillary? It was Obama. It was 08. I was there. It was a glorious night. <laughs> of course you were. It was, and even Baby Grand is decent with Ray Charles. But most of his albums were really not... Have they not much filler like on them, man. this one's mainly filler.
1: He has a whole duet with Cyndi Lauper that doesn't work. It's called The <laughs> Code of Silence, it's just like nothing. Wants to know the but you went Big Man on Mulberry Street was, oh, I remember liking, but the arrangement is lacking. But that's not a bad song, that's a pretty good song.
0: It's his worst record, and even he knows it.
1: He didn't want to be making it again, it's like as simple as that. Especially in the old days. We were just talking about how Rihanna got to have all this time off. In the old days, when the record industry was more of a functioning machine, you couldn't get off the machine. You just had to keep going, even if you were Billy Joel, even if you were as big as Billy Joel in the 80s. And man, number 48, I feel like I've talked about a million times, maybe not in this podcast. I'm fascinated with this album. It is a fascinating album, but it's not a good album. Van Halen's Van Halen 3 from 1998 and it is of course the album where Gary Cherone took over from Sammy Hagar and i guess we've talked more about the circumstances surrounding this album the abortive David Lee Roth reunion at the VMAs i feel like we've talked about it a million times but yeah the actual album it's fascinating because a few things like Eddie Van Halen said that this was the first album he wrote sober That was the claim. And once he broke through the block that he was writing better music than ever and all this stuff, there were a lot of twists and turns to Van Halen during this period. They almost hired or technically did hire for the space of a day, a very nice guy named Mitch Malloy, who has an amazing voice. He's a great singer, great looking guy. Nice guy. I interviewed him last year, or was it the year before? I interviewed him not long ago about this crazy experience where Eddie was like, you're in the band, and then he found that he was not in the band. Uh, And I frankly 100% believe him because it just matches how they did things. And you can also see why they'd want him in the band. He seemed very much like a good replacement for Sammy Hagar. But anyway, what Mitch told me is that Eddie played him these instrumentals for what became Van Halen 3, and he was like, he didn't see the potential in them, and that really hurt Eddie's feelings, which again may actually have been a factor in why he wasn't ultimately the singer. These songs, these instrumentals were not focused. They go in and out. Some of them seem like they have more than one chorus. One chorus is better than the other, but then it doesn't come back. They also didn't have a real producer who could tell them like, no, that's the good part. I've listened to this quite a few times looking for like, for example, the song Without You, which I guess was a single. has yeah there is a good part but it doesn't it's buried in a bunch of bad parts and it's all sludgy the riffs aren't clear it's just not it just doesn't work
0: it's not good and there's the one song in which eddie sings at the very end about homelessness that's a pretty embarrassing moment
1: thing is, if Roger Waters can do arena tours singing the way he does, is he like that much of a worse singer than Roger Waters? It's more just the Van Halen context. He's about a Roger Waters level singer. He's fine. But yeah. it's just like this sort of a sort of socially conscious Van Halen ballad sung by Eddie Van Halen just didn't work. And Gary Sharon doesn't really have it. Okay. What Gary would say is that he was being pushed to sing more like Sammy Hagar than was his want. And so he wasn't yeah. even able to to his strengths. I think he was trying so hard to please them. It was such a big opportunity for him. But yeah, it doesn't work. Bad album, indefensible album. Just indefensible.
0: And what's worth noting is their previous record, Balance, with Sammy Hagar is also pretty shitty.
1: In the time of Balance, Alex Van Halen had the neck brace. Yeah. Eddie was like seriously into his alcoholism. It was known as the ambulance tour because Eddie also was having his hip (laughs) issues. It was an absolute mess then of course there was the twister soundtrack that came in between
0: yeah that's a whole other story yeah it's a great story
1: great story there and and then there's even an instrumental credited the only thing i think credited to edward and alex van halen because van halen didn't exist for a minute Uh, (laughs) yeah oh you're right it was Yeah, so there's not a good time for Van Halen, to say the least. I wrote about this in my 10,000-word posthumous story about Eddie's life is the rejection of that album, the one that he thought was his big achievement after getting sober, clearly shook him because the one album that they released after that was a very hard-won album with David Lee Roth that was a mix of old stuff and a bit of new stuff, but wasn't like a fully written from scratch, new album. So he never released a fully written from scratch, new album again. So it obviously no. had a huge impact on him. Number 47. Yeah. I don't know what to say about this. The Grateful Dead's Built to Last is this 1989 album. I, I don't know why anyone would expect the Grateful Dead studio album in 1989 to be good, but tell me about this album, Andy.
0: It's a weird thing that this thing started happening in the mid 80s where like, the Moody Blues and the Beach Boys and the Grateful Dead had these ginormous hits. Like, it just out of nowhere. Touch of Grey. The Grateful Dead pre-Touch of Grey were a shrinking band. They were playing big shows, but it was shrinking. And all, then all of a sudden, they have this crazy out-of-nowhere pop-it that's on MTV. So that kind of made their label just demand that they go try again. And Jerry Garcia, he was still recovering from a five day diabetic coma where he forgot how to play guitar. And keyboardist Brad Midland was in pretty rough health and would be dead a couple of years later and they were just a tapped out band that didn't have a lot of strong new material and it sounds very late 80s and it's just not a good dead record
1: i guess brent midland sings lead on four songs so brent midland while he'd sang a lot in concert this was the most midland songs on any dead record so it was an increase in a midland increase and for the previous album with touch of gray they had seven years to work on at this time they had nothing and a member was in a coma and uh, no good. Yeah, number 46 is Outcast Idlewild. It's from 2006. And horrible objectively doesn't really cover this album. But I think you're saying that you really don't, you mean horrible by the standards of the artist.
0: Yeah, because for Outcast and for some of these groups, I don't so much mean horrible as a huge outlier in their catalog and really below expectations and a big dip between everything else and this record I'm talking about here. And prior to this outcast, they had an incredible decade of just groundbreaking, amazing albums that were all so unique. And then the soundtrack comes and it was the last gasp of the duo. And it's aged pretty poorly, I think, and just doesn't hold up at all to their previous records.
1: There's some really good songs. There's Peaches, which is a really good song. (laughs)
0: Right, but there's no Miss Jackson or BOB or anything in that same universe,
1: yes, and the idea, as on the track Idawa Blue of merging hip hop with Delta Blues is really interesting. I mean, no one really did that besides like Beck or somebody, so it's a cool idea in theory in practice, it falls a little flat. It was all connected to this movie and. People. It's overall not up to their standards. It's too many tracks. It's 25 tracks. Probably at least a quarter of it is very good, which is why it's not horrible per se. But yes. yeah, it's not. It's For an it's, outcast album, it's disappointing.
0: For sure. They but, were yeah. done that the previous record was two solo records. This was a duo that I no longer wanted to be a duo. Any
1: group that doesn't want to be a group making a record, there's always going to be trouble. That's yeah. another commonality here. So. Number 45, now see, some of these are horrible by the, only by the standards of the artists, and some of these are really horrible, like unlistenably horrible. And I would say that number 45, Willie Nelson's Countryman, is, it's just, it's really bad. I tried to listen to it. It doesn't, I think someone, I think our reviewer at the time said he sounds disconnected from the sort of slick reggae track. So it's Willie Nelson doing a reggae album. Not only does he sound disconnected, it sounds like he doesn't even know he's singing reggae. It's like he's just singing and then there's this reggae track underneath him. It's just really bad.
0: Part of it is that Willie has done so many records over the years, like a hundred some records, and he's willing to try anything. And he's had (laughs) big success by doing the standards and doing so much other stuff, but he just wasn't born to do reggae. It just really doesn't work.
1: His cover of The Harder They Come by Jimmy Cliff is listenable. I'm going to get my share now, watch my the harder they come. And it's interesting to have Toots show up to join him for Johnny Cash's I'm a Worried Man. The place I go to draw my pay. close the door on me today. It just, it doesn't work. And I also think that Willie Nelson, in the end, he's from an earlier version of the record industry where you might go in for a week, make a record, whatever, and see what happens and then move on and then never think about it again. It's yeah. not a big deal for Willie Nelson to make an album.
0: Yeah, he did a blues record. He just bangs these things out. I bet he did this in like four days.
1: The current pop idea, this is their era. Willie Nelson doesn't know about that. He, he wasn't thinking this is my reggae era. It's something he did for no. a week. I'd say 50-50, he only has a vague memory of ever making this record. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> I think you could probably propose right now him making a reggae album and he'd be like, oh, interesting idea. <laughs> Maybe yeah. <just> make one. <laughs> yeah. See but how many times his, you can get him to do it.
0: But his voice sounds good. He's such a great singer that he almost, that there's moments which he almost pulls it off, but not really.
1: Number 44 yeah. is R.E.M.'s Around the Sun, 2004. And this is sort of an easy one because it's one of the ones that the band themselves have disowned. Peter Buck said the meanest things you could imagine about it, that it's not even listenable. Sounds like a bunch of people that are so bored with the material that they can't stand it anymore. What Michael Stipe said in response was he thinks the songs are good, and this is actually a common thing for the bad album. The songs are good, but they just didn't perform them very well. And it is true that the opening track, Leaving New York, I always kind of liked... You can also feel they were at the time they fell into this because they got into this sort of Ryan Wilson esque um, Baroque pop thing that was their thing in their final phase. And they also fell into this middle age, mid tempo thing. And you can really feel it. And the album just has no energy to it. So, yeah,
0: yeah. It had been a rough like eight years <laughs> or so when Bill Berry left and the albums weren't selling, they lost their cool. And they were just on the margins of the music world. And this is just one that didn't work.
1: What's so weird, though, is so at the same time, they also, I guess what happened with this album is they started making it, then they went off and did their greatest hits and and lost all focus on this. When they returned to this album, they actually had no enthusiasm for it whatsoever. But what's weird, though, is that very year they were playing on the Vote for Chance tour and they were like at their peak as a live act. They were really good at that point. So
0: weird. Yeah, it's an undertold part of their story that at the peak of their popularity, they didn't tour much. But in the last decade, they toured a ton. And in Europe, they were so big and their shows got really good. They became a stadium rock band.
1: And Michael Stipe very belatedly finally found himself as a showman. And he was finally mm-hmm. comfortable being really flamboyant on stage and was really compelling. And so it was so weird. It's just ironic like you don't always get all your shit together at the same time. So just when they were losing their mojo in the studio, they were becoming better than ever live. It's very strange, very strange. You would never think seeing them live in 2004, you would never think this was a band about to give up the ghost. It seemed like they were in a new prime and then you hear them in the studio and not so much. Yeah, it's weird. Speaking of which, <laughs> number 43, <laughs> Metallica's Saint Anger from 2003, and of course this what is much more memorable than the album, of course, is the documentary some kind of monster still one of the greatest music documentaries ever made
0: this is flawed just all around but the drum sound is the most infamous part of it it's produced by bob rock and they miked large's drums so it sounds as if he's banging on two tin cans throughout the entire record
1: specifically the snare the snare, the snare yeah they went for this like metallic tinny yeah it sounds like a garbage can or something and they just, they really committed to that sound. This is a band willing to make strange mixing decisions. They, on their early albums, famously, there's no, you can't hear the bass at all. Like, they, they're very perverse when it comes time to mixing. And they, yeah, they went for this snare sound and committed hard to it. In yeah. fact, their next album, which was Return to Form, is infamous for being one of the worst examples of the loudness war of any album. It's mixed so loud that it digitally Whoa. distorts.
0: But yeah, this one... Yeah. They had no bass player at the time. They were a trio and they were making it. And James Hetfield, he was off in rehab throughout a lot of the making of the record. And the producer, Bob Rock, is playing bass, but they were barely a band. As you see in the documentary, there's a lot of moments in the studio where it's just Kirk and Lars. And they couldn't do much as the two of them. So it was just a freaking fiasco.
1: One of the things I looked at in this list a couple things. Could this be an album that someone someday will be like, this is actually a buried classic? And or if this album had never been released and it was suddenly released, would people be like, holy shit, this is kind of amazing. And with St. Anger, I can see a little bit of that. The sort of crudity of it, the way it has almost a punk rock energy and not the sort of virtuosity of other Metallica. There's something cool about it. And I also really like the line, my lifestyle determines my death style. My lifestyle determines my death style. My lifestyle determines my death style. Because Keeps... that's very true. Yeah. You can't argue with that. That is a factually true yeah. <laughs> for and, all of
0: us. And that was Rehab. There's so many of these lyrics are out of James' experience in Rehab.
1: Uh, but yeah, and yeah, I could see someone taking some perverse opinion, like it's actually one of Metallica's best albums. I don't personally think that, but... I, it's conceivable to me that someone would would take that position. With number 42, The Clash's Cut the Crap from 1985, no one could ever argue that this is The Clash's best album. It is not their best album.
0: No, it's so obviously their worst record, and it's their worst record by 50 miles.
1: Another weird commonality I've found among these bad albums is like dialogue tracks is often a sign of a really bad album. On the opening track, Dictator, there's all this sort of like background radio broadcast atmosphere stuff. there's a bunch of albums that have either spoken word dialogue or radio snippets it seems like anytime you're trying to do that stuff you're maybe covering up for bad songs or trying to hard.
0: yeah that this is barely the clash they fired Mick Jones who was their guitarist and he was one of the key songwriters they lost both their drummers essentially that's Topper Heaton and Terry Chimes so this is just Joe this is just Joe Strummer and bassist Paul Simonon And they called it Cut the Crap, because they're basically implying their previous record, Combat Rock, was too poppy, was too mainstream, was crap. So this was supposed to be back, this is supposed to be a return to their punk rock roots, but it's also very mid 80s at the same time with synths and with drum machines. So it's neither here nor there. The songs just aren't there.
1: There's a song called We Are The Clash that is just so embarrassing.
0: Yeah, because they weren't The Clash. It was half The Clash. And it, this just wasn't their time. And it was just three years earlier. They were the coolest band in the world. They had the biggest hit in the world. They were playing stadiums with The Who. It fell apart so quickly.
1: What's weird is that with Big Audio Dynamite, which Mick Jones would start soon after this, a lot of the things that don't work on this record did work for Big Audio Dynamite, which is weird.
0: Right. Yeah, a big part of The Clash was the push and pull between Mick being into hip-hop and more modern things and Joe being more into rockabilly and punk. And they met somewhere in the middle, and that's what made them work. This didn't have that push and pull. It was really just basically a Joe solo record. So
1: number 41 is the Van Halen 3 of Genesis records. It's called Calling All Stations. It's from 1997, and I guess they had a dude named Ray Wilson come and sing for Genesis for a while.
0: Yeah, and he was a Scottish grunge singer, which is a weird combination, but he was in a Scottish grunge band. He was in his mid-twenties, and he was a good singer, but he was replacing two of the most famous singers of all time to some degree, which is Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel, and when he joined, the album was sort of half done, and even he told me about two years ago, or about a year ago, that even he knows that it just didn't work. There's a few songs I love. The Dividing Line is a really good prog song, truly great. But there's so much on it that doesn't work, and it doesn't even sound like Genesis. It was dismissed in Rolling Stone as a Mike the Mechanics art rock record, which is a pretty brutal sting. I mean,
1: they must have known that continuing, you only get two singers. (laughs)
0: Like, it's the same. It really is the
1: video with three.
0: They didn't know that because their previous record, which was released at the height of grunge, was We Can't Dance had seven hits off of it, and they played football stadiums. So from 1967 until 1991, they got bigger with every album. And they lost key members. They lost Peter Gabriel. They lost Steve Hackett. And they got bigger They got bigger each time. So they may have figured, okay, great. Now with this one, it'll be even bigger. But no.
1: It's that Spinal Tap logic when Nigel leaves the band, when Nigel Tufnell leaves the band founding guitarist, they start talking about how we've had many members leave. It's just like, They start talking about drummers who were in the band for six months. So it's that exact non-logic of, yeah, it's all the same. We can always, we can carry on.
0: Came out the same day as the talk show record by STP that had a new singer. And that didn't do well either. It was a really weird day.
1: Huh. They should have toured together. Seems like anyone showed up. You'd be the only person in the audience. It would just be you. Yeah. (laughs) Did they tour with this guy?
0: They toured Europe and they announced an American tour. And I was so excited. They announced like five arenas, they put them on sale and they sold like four tickets each. And then they canceled (laughs) that and they announced a theater tour. So the previous tour was at Giant Stadium, sold out multiple nights. And then they put a theater tour on sale. And I bought tickets and I got like second row center. I was like, fuck yeah, that was so easy. I'm in the second row. And then I got a very sad email that was like, the whole tour's off. They didn't do one American concert. They couldn't even play theaters.
1: Oof. You bought the only ticket of the entire (laughs) tour.
0: I think I did. It was really sad. It was not a good way to end the band.
1: Number 40 is an insanely obscure album. The Kinks have so many albums and... Many of them, unfortunately, are a little bit lost to history, Although they're a very great band. So the 1975 Kinks album, the Kinks present a soap opera. And again, we fall into the dialogue trap. There's dialogue on this album.
0: Yeah, it was just the thing about Ray is he loves telling the story. And he's done a great job of it. If you hear Arthur or if you hear Village Green, they're brilliant. He could really tell a story across a full album. It's the creator of the concept record, but... The soap opera just really didn't work.
1: And it's also like another album later on this list. It's about a rock star. In this case, he trades places with a regular guy. Like you can just feel it failing as you describe it. Yeah, And Ray Davies did love stories, but it seems like he forgot to write a song. Is there even one good song on here?
0: And I don't think there's any. And this started as a television play and was turned into a this record. It's a shame because the Kinks of the Seventies, they've lots of great records that have been totally forgotten. It's just this is not one of them.
1: This is song ordinary people and he's just like doing spoken word about what he's gonna do when he switches places with this guy. It's it's not it's not, not good. It's like not another- enough. Number thirty nine. I did not know this record existed. I did not know the Monkees made an album in the seventies. It it's a Monkees album called Changes. Hideous cover, by the way.
0: The Monkees it died so quickly because their TV show was canceled in sixty eight, and Peter Tork quit, and their audience at the time it, it was mainly young people. And when you're twelve years old in two years you're fourteen, and you like different stuff. So the Monkees just collapsed, and then by nineteen seventy it was just Davy Jones and Mickey Dolenz. And this record was just the last record on their contract. They wrote none of the songs. It's just complete direct that they have disowned a million times.
1: And what's the worst song on the album?
0: Yes, play Acapulco Sun,
1: The tropical theme, it's a bad,
0: bad sign. Take and with me Down along the sea. What's funny is that Peter Tork and Michael Nesmith, they were the two musicians in the band. And they were gone at this point. So it's like just two actors, basically.
1: So number 38 is Prince's Chaos and Disorder. And this is from 1996, when he was in the middle of a deadly feud with Warner Brothers. And this is a sort of a contract fulfillment album. But what's cool about it to me, and what I always liked about it, it is like this slightly unhinged rock album for the most part, although it's missing the best rock stuff he had at the time. But what I would say in defense of this record is if... It had never come out, and it came out today. Total guitar rock Prince album from the mid-90s that no one's ever heard, and people heard it now, they'd be like, oh, there's some cool shit on this. Sure. I think that Prince has made worse albums. I'm not sure about this one.
0: Yeah, I think it's a fair point. I, I think part of this was expectations at the time, and the knowledge that he made it against his will, and was at war with his label, and was holding back his best stuff. It felt like... He was half assing it. And you could hear it in the songs that the prince at 96 that, that he was capable of just much more than this.
1: Like Dinner with Dolores.
0: Dinner with Dolores. Must be some kind of
1: at this point, he was still so much at his peak that he was incapable. Even what he thought were his throwaways were not actually that bad. But I think Rave Unto the Joy of Fantastic, which was this kind of forced, thin, Clive Davis is not that good. You know, there's some other ones that are, and some later ones that aren't that good, but I don't know. Yeah, All it's, Prince, them. I and Prince, it's hard to, to gauge. Prince barely got yeah. that terrible, I have to say.
0: Yeah, it's an overwhelming catalog. There's so much stuff. This one seemed to me the one in which he wasn't trying hard. Number
1: 37, kind of a cheap shot. Number 37 is Fleetwood Mac's Time, a Fleetwood Mac album, correct me if I'm wrong, without Lindsey Buckingham and without Stevie Nicks.
0: Yes, but there is Becca (laughs) Bramlett, who I just interviewed, actually, who's the daughter of Delaney and Bonnie, who was taking on the role of Stevie Nicks, essentially. And then they toured and and had Dave Mason on guitar from traffic. It was crazy.
1: And Christine is still in the band. Yes. The thing, listen, Mick Fleetwood was indomitable. He would not stop no matter what. And I guess from his perspective, it is that sort of spinal type perspective. We've lost many members. He just really thought they could just carry on no matter what, apparently.
0: And it's this crazy thing where the band's name is just the rhythm section. So if there's Fleetwood and there's Mac, there's Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, but they needed Lindsay and Stevie to really be Fleetwood Mac yeah, at this point in time
1: from his perspective they had existed long before Lindsay and Stevie they still had Christine so why not carry on and you can almost see the logic and I, Christine did some decent songs uh, you said you mentioned I do oh, my mind made up about you, and, I and all over again
0: Yeah, I think those songs are totally solid, but the rest of it just doesn't sound like Fleetwood Mac. To do it
1: in 1995 is just wild. And it's right before the big reunion, of course. So number 36 is one of those things I feel like I've talked about or written about a bunch of times. It's Kiss... Music from The Elder. This is just one of those infamous albums. Unfortunately, unlike some other albums where you're like, I'm glad I listened to this, there's some cool stuff, or at least it's interesting, or it's just, it doesn't even sound good. Like the singing on it isn't good. Nothing is good about this album. It's Kiss trying to make music that they can't sing, that they can't perform. It doesn't sound right. It's trying to make this pompous concept album with Bob Ezrin who had just done The Wall and it's just it's terrible
0: yeah, <laughs> as and, the band
1: will admit yeah
0: and as Gene Simmons said we wanted a critical success and we lost our minds. so even he knows that this was not a good record it just wasn't them playing two of their strengths they aren't a serious band in that way what you want from Kisses is like Love Gun or something Don't want the elder.
1: And this is one where it's it's not subtle. You listen to it and you're like, this sounds bad. It's amazing that they, at some point when they listened back to it, they weren't like, this is not releasable. This is terrible. Number thirty five, continuing your just endless picking on Pete Townsend and the Who is Pete Townsend's 1993 album Psycho Derelict. And here we have the dialogue beast strikes again. This is actually one of the most infamous examples of spoken word dialogue. Pumped up, I think, by the success of Tommy on Broadway. He thought he could do anything. He was ready to do this ambitious rock opera radio play thing. It had so much dialogue and people hated that so much that he released an alternate version with no dialogue because it made it, you start listening to music and then people start talking. It's not even, there's no precedent for this. There's no album ever made that works that has a bunch of people talking over the music, doing performed dialogue. It's hideous. But it all was him trying to do a Broadway play. He even tried to do it with the Tommy producer. So he was trying to do a blueprint for the play without thinking that, as a listener, this is absolute torture.
0: But what's interesting <laughs> is he's such a good writer that on later tours in the 90s, he played English Boy. I'm an English boy.
1: I'm part of the right.
0: Played Now and Then.
1: Had no idea what was in your mind. I'm not and
0: solo acoustic, and they were beautiful. They're really good songs. It's just those two songs, but they're great. But the versions on the albums are so hideous, so poorly produced, so buried in glop that you can't even tell that they're good songs.
1: English Boy got some radio play at the time, and I always liked English Boy. I had a soft spot for English Boy. Listening to it now, I'm like, it's too much going. A good chorus buried in a bunch of crap. There's the a ghost of a good song in there. And I think it is unfortunately emblematic of this tragic failing of Pete Townsend in his later years, where he forgot what he always knew beforehand, which is he could just write an album full of good songs. And that would be enough. Just hold yourself to that standard. Write 12 good songs and put them out, whether as The Who or as a solo album. And unfortunately, this is his final solo album. But just write 12 good songs. That's all. And it started really with Who's Next, where it couldn't be just a great... He always thought Who's Next, I've talked about this before, was a failure because it was just a bunch of great songs. It wasn't what he wanted, which is basically inventing the internet 25 years before the (laughs) internet. Grandiose ideas that are almost hard to communicate to anyone. And if the album doesn't do these things, then it's a failure.
0: Yeah. I'm a diehard Who fan, and I have been for 25 Mm -hmm. years. But the story of Who's Next, Endless Wire, and Psycho-Derelict, and this stuff, they all tie together in ways that confuse even me. It's so complicated that it just makes sense in Pete's head and nowhere else.
1: That's right. There I had almost forgotten about that. So he had this guru, I believe it's pronounced Meyer Baba. Baba O'Reilly is named after him, a tribute to him. I believe he programmed Meyer Baba's birth date into the synth or something and got that sequence. Some yeah. Yeah. weird thing like that. There's some kind of a thread that ties together all these albums. That's why Bob O'Reilly reoccurs on psycho a little bit. And it's, yeah, it's utterly inexplicable. The actual story of psycho which I will not recount here, the more you read about it, the more sort of offensive and questionable that is, uh, and it also weirdly predicts some of the troubles he had later it's very weird very ill-advised it clearly wasn't listening to anyone it's clear he wasn't like bouncing these ideas i think the problem is he writes in this book that he felt that no one ever understood his ideas because he had presented them to the who and they'd be like what can we just can we just (laughs) play our instruments and shut up and so he just i think gave up on 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 dialogue with people who might be like, Pete, this makes no sense. Pete, no one's going to understand this. Pete, the story is horrible. Pete, the dialogue on the record is a bad idea. So I think that's what happened. But it's always sad when something is so poorly received when Pete Thompson is alive and well touring, has not made a solo record since 1993, and hasn't made very much Who music either. And so obviously he's never really talked about, but I'm sure the bad reception of this album scarred him pretty hard.
0: I'm sure it did. And that last Who record they put out in 2019, which is just called Who, there's a few good songs on there. He, has, he can still write a song. It's just so rare he puts them out.
1: Pete Thompson gave us enough great songs. It's all right. And number 34, Aerosmith's Nine Lives, and that's 1997. It's always bands can only pull off their sort of comeback their second live, their third live, their nine life They can only pull it off for so long. It's very funny that it's named Nine Lives because it was about the time when this remarkable, one of the most remarkable comebacks in the entire history of the music industry, it's about the time that it was starting to sputter out. They did everything they could all these years, getting all these co-writers, trying so hard to write hits and have these great videos. And there are three songs that were all the same song, <laughs> Crying, <laughs> Crazy, and amazing. amazing. They were all hits. They all had Alicia Silverstone, right? All three of those?
0: Yes, they did. Ninety-seven was the beginning of a new era, where MTV was done playing bands like Aerosmith. It was Hanson and the Spice Girls starting, and there was no way to really get these songs out there.
1: There's a song called Pink on that record that's pretty good.
0: Pink, it's my new obsession.
1: And look, Stephen Tower is facing a pretty serious lawsuit right now, and I certainly don't treat that lightly, and so that's going to color the way people talk about Aerosmith it was, of course, something that he admitted to in his book many years ago. <sighs> what a mess. But Aerosmith, yeah, they then just full-on did a Diane Warren song and had an enormous hit with it. So the lesson they learned is just the more shameless they were, doing something that would have been unimaginable to Aerosmith in the 70s, and it happens to be, by the way, a great Diane Warren song. But sure. that was, but that was their final hit. I don't want to miss a thing. Never oh a yeah.
0: And one. then in the 2000s was just a disaster for them. It never seems to end, but yeah. And John Kuladner was a big part of their success in the eighties and early to mid nineties. He made those albums happen. He was a A&R guy at Columbia that would bring in the outside songwriters that would sort of make these albums happen, would bring the hits. And they got cocky by this point because they had 10 years now of success. So they didn't listen to him and that's part of the reason that this album just didn't work.
1: Now, number 33, I feel, is an, n- number thirty-three. I feel, is another example of this poor band just taking the hit because you know a lot about them because I think most people would just let this album slide on the grounds that they didn't know it existed. I certainly did not know it existed. <laughs> apparently, Apparently, Devo in 1990 made an album called Smooth Noodle Maps and this album was bad.
0: Yes, it was done on a very small label. They were... Just seen as an early '80s has been. Mark was already focused on his movie projects, and this is just very half-assed. And they were so dejected. There's a song on the record It's called "Devo Has Feelings Too." they were so <laughs> sick of being dismissed and being made fun of. It's really a shame because they're one of because they're one of my favorite bands of all time. It's just. They had the curse of a huge hit, and that put expectations on them by their label that they couldn't deal with, and just made them a has-been joke just a few years after it came out.
1: Devo Has Feelings, too. It's a pretty great song title. I'll give them that. Of course. Okay, so number 32 is a very controversial one. There's there's a lot of ins and outs on this one. Number 32 is Liz Fair's self-titled album from 2003. And this is an album that... It's complicated because it, it had this initial backlash and negative reaction that a lot of people have now kind of pulled back from. In the case of Pitchfork, which famously gave it a 0.0, the Pitchfork critic, whose name was Matt LeMay, has since wrote a, a bunch of tweets saying that he feels bad about the review. But he was far from the only person who gave it a bad review at the time. He was, I think, part of the thing is what she did in 2003 talking to indie fans, which is she teamed up with The Matrix who were the songwriting team who had just done Avril Lavigne's "Complicated" and "Skater Boy"? The euphemism is worked with Avril Lavigne, but I think the I think the, from what I understand, the I don't think whatever Avril wants to say now. In fact, our cover story at the time made it clear that certainly the songwriting team did not feel that Avril had a strong role in the writing of the song. So let's put it that way. But so she worked with them, and the assumption at the time was that basically her label made her do that. And what Liz Ferris subsequently said is, no, she actually wanted to try it. And I believe her. It would be interesting if you're a songwriter to sit down with people like that and see what they can bring to your craft. It, there's a long tradition of it. Mm. And the songs are fine. The songs, so basically I'm disagreeing with you. I don't think this is just, a horrible it's album.
0: T- it's yeah. totally fair. It's possible. It's possible. I was sucked in by all the bad hype about it that I remembered. I did play it and I didn't really like it. That's it, fair it enough. I mean, for Yes. Yeah.
1: Why Can't I? Which was like the hit from the album. Is still to this day, it's literally by far, by like an enormous margin, is her top stream song on Spotify. But yeah. like, for example, Fucking Run, which is one of the classics from her most classic album. I- has 6 million streams, and Why Can't I has 34 million. Exile and Godville is an amazing album from 1993, but like no one heard it comparatively, and I think she wanted people to hear her music. And I I think that's reasonable, and it's a perfectly fine 2000 pop song. It's as good as any other sort of that reign of guitar-led pop from women back then. And it's also true that's only one of the threads on the album. She actually worked with a lot of different people on the Mm -hmm. album. It's actually a lot sonically going on. And it's, yeah, it's all a little bit more quote unquote professional than the cool indie stuff she was doing. But it's not as much of a break as it might have seemed at the time. There's Pete Yorn stuff, which is totally different. I think Michael Penn. Yeah. I just don't think it's a horrible album.
0: Okay, play it again. I will have have a more open mind. I'm very willing to be wrong about this.
1: But it's at the same time, though, I will say what is true, though, is I actually saw her do a concert on the tour for this album. I think Webster Hall, and she was wearing one of those wireless headset mics. And while the album has aged okay, that show was embarrassing. I do remember that the show was very awkward. She was trying to do a pop show, and that didn't work at all. There was definitely some sexism in the, and even ageism, like she was in her early 30s and people were like, oh, she's trying to be like a teenager. She wasn't old, like she just, she was a mom, but she was, what's the big deal? We found that Public Enemy review where Chuck D is shamed for being 34 years old. <laughs> right, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> How dare you continue rapping? It's just yeah. weird. So number okay. 31 is Weezer's Ratitude. And this is a band, as you point out, that every fan of Weezer has albums they don't like. Weezer has tried a lot of different things. And not everything is popular with all Weezer fans.
0: Yeah, that there's a large segment of Weezer fans that basically just like two or three records and just find reasons to hate everything they've done in the past 25 years. And I think that's unfair. I think there's been a lot of good stuff on the recent records, but I think Ratitude is one where they missed the mark. That bringing in Dr. Luke and Little Wayne and Jermaine Dupree is them not really playing to their strengths and really trying to get a hit, and like it's very 09, and it doesn't work for me, then.
1: In his song "Pork and Beans" from 2008, he wrote about that was on the that was on the Red album. And he wrote about basically his label pushing him to, to work with Timbaland, which I don't think actually happened on this album, but he, the equivalent did. And it is 100% true, I'm sure, that he was being asked by Jimmy Iving to work with Timbaland when you look at, I'm gonna ban bringing Up on this podcast soon, but the Chris Cornell Timbaland album from that time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like very soon, no one is gonna be allowed, including me, is ever gonna be allowed to mention that that album. But Timbaland uh, knows the way to reach the top of the charts. Maybe if I work with him, I can perfect the art. And, and then so, one year later, yeah. he
0: brings in Dr. Luke.
1: Can't Stop Partying, which is very few people's favorite Weezer song, I would say. Yeah,
0: no, it doesn't work.
1: But again, but Weezer is one of these bands like Fleetwood Mac or the Isley Brothers or Jefferson Starship where you just keep going. And so you make Ratitude and you continue on. Sometimes it feels Rivers was maybe signaling to the world certain things about these albums, like calling it Ratitude and having the picture of the dog on the cover or with Hurley. I think sometimes he was signaling, maybe don't take this as the most serious entry in our canon, like sending little messages, I think is fair to say that might be something going yeah, on
0: there. I think that's reasonable.
1: And with the idea that there's always going to be a next album, it's more of an old-fashioned thing rather, again, almost in that Willie Nelson thing where it's, you make albums because you're a band, they're not all going to be great, but there'll be another one coming yeah. down the pike. Yeah.
0: You know? It's so weird, though, as a Weezer fan that from 90s six to oh eight or whatever there were very few records years and years would pass you'd wait for a new record it was a big event and now it's just every year it's very weird. Right. What also does
1: take the pressure off though. It's it's one way to, yeah. to to create regularly is just to commit yourself to writing and releasing and some are gonna be good, some aren't. And yeah. <laughs> number thirty Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street from 1984. Another example for how to make a bad album is make a soundtrack to a flop movie. He's also the star of this flop movie. He redoes Beatles songs. There's a version of, of Good Day Sunshine where it sounds like he's on antidepressants or something. It's actually almost interesting because it's like something out of Walk Hard or something. Re-record <laughs> one of your happiest songs when you sound incredibly depressed. Good day, Sunshine. Good day, sunshine. I need to laugh. It's but it's not deliberate, I don't think. I think he just was really bummed out the day. It's, it's just really pallid terrible version i mean the long and winding road is like this like jazz club bill murray lounge version of it it's, just, it's stunningly bad just stunningly bad it's no
0: good the long and winding
1: road
0: yeah it's a very bad time period for modern production in 84 And to take Beatles songs of all songs and try and do them in that way, it's just, it's humiliating when you listen to it. Awkward to hear it almost.
1: Yeah, I would delete it from the catalog if I were him. But I don't think even, I mean, there's a bunch of Paul McCartney stuff that was unfairly derided and is actually great from his soul career. This is not one of them. No one can argue that. Number 29, if there's really like an emblematic thing of someone who is truly like a great artist, a genius, like one of the greatest songwriters and singers ever, and guitarist, just a monumental artist of our time, making an absolutely terrible album. It's this one. It's Dog Eat Dog by Joni Mitchell. It also embodies, again, the, the mid-80s thing. 1985, she makes a full-on synth-pop album and doesn't even play guitar on it and just abandons herself to the sounds of the times.
0: Yeah, it, she was going for a hit, and there was real money to be made then in, in hit songs. If you got one of those big MTV songs, it made you a fortune. So she got Thomas Dolby. Me, my- and Don Henley and Steve Lukather, who was from Toto, and just went for it. But, oh my God, it's really bad.
1: I think there was there's a couple songs where I felt like it was working for me. But my understanding from from people like Thomas Dolby is that she wasn't really working with these people. She wasn't accepting what she was being given. She was trying to learn the sense herself. She was trying to pick it just she was just out of her depth. Yeah, but she was just in too alien territory to do anything Decent. It's just baffling. I think she was very unhappy in her personal life at that time. Is this an album where someone could be like, actually, this is one of Joni Mitchell's best albums. Actually, it's classic. No, I don't think anyone could could do that. It's so hard to break through the production to hear it.
0: Oh, yeah, no, yeah. It's the embodiment of this problem of mid 80s production just can ruin anything.
1: We called it an unpleasant listen, I guess, in, in our review at the time. Yeah, number 28. I don't even know why you bothered with this one. <laughs> 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 Who the hell knew this album existed? How did you even encounter an Almond Brothers band album from 1981?
0: Aware of Clive Davis's attempts to make them an 80s hit-making band, (laughs) and this is the record.
1: Why did J-Mo, their drummer, why did he leave? What hot gig did he have that was better than being an Allman Brothers band?
0: I think they were fighting with him with money issues, because in the late 70s, like things got weird. Greg married Cher, they broke up about 10 different times and reformed a million times, and they were just in rough shape. And They're trying to do their classic sound and be modern and get a hit.
1: I'm confused by this one. Why did this stand out? I'm genuinely asking why did this stand out to you enough to include in this list?
0: Because they're a great band and in the 70s. Yeah, they were awesome. And this was them trying to do something else and failing. And so to me, that's interesting.
1: Listening to a song called I Got A Right To Be Wrong. And it just feels a little forced. Was their 1979 album Enlightened Rogues much better? I don't know. You tell me.
0: No, I <laughs> declare this the worst one.
1: I would put this on the 50 albums that no one ever needs to talk about in any contest, oh, but I okay. feel you. Number okay. 27, Run DMC is Crown Royal. I remember when this came out. This is an example of they were just trying very hard. They wanted to get on TRL. It hadn't been that long since their prime, 15 years. That would be where Eminem was in 2016, you know, chronologically, just interestingly. Right.
0: Yeah. But the 90s for hip-hop was such a huge decade.
1: The way that rappers flowed in hip-hop obviously had evolved substantially, unfortunately, from Run DMC, who I love. But it's hard not to be dated. But it's also unfair, though, because someone like Kid Rock, who's on the album, was not rapping, was certainly like basically still rapping like Run DMC. So that's what's not fair. And so they, they tried. They brought on a bunch of people... And uh, I guess you you don't think it worked
0: it did not work, and they've a guest they've a guest artist that's on every single song, so that means Stephen Jenkins is on a side. It's not run d m c there's all of these other people that are on the record. it just sounds ridiculous
1: yeah the uh, the Stephen Jenkins song is called rock Show so Act like y'all don't know.
0: it just Some bands just are their era and their moment, and there's no way to go beyond it. And they are the 80s, and they were great. and They changed the world a million times over, and I love them, but they couldn't make it work in even the 90s. By 01, it was beyond over. It's got to be
1: the only album to have both Nas and Sugar Ray on it. They tried really hard. And the other thing to understand it chronologically, the other thing that would help make sense of why they would make an album like this is this is only two years after the Santana Supernatural album. So I'm yes. sure the pitch was, look what Santana did. One of these songs might catch fire, and then you have a little bit of a commercial run. Unfortunately, yeah. none of the songs have caught fire.
0: Yeah, then a year later, Jam Master J died. It was just a rough time.
1: Okay, number 26, controversial pick, and one I've decided I really disagree with. Madonna's American Life, 2003, I think it's actually a pretty interesting continuation of what she did on Ray of Light, on music. It doesn't all work, definitely. It's not a great album. It's not a perfect album. But I think it's pretty interesting and confessional. And I think the one thing that people agree is her attempts to rap on the album are ill-advised. But she's not like rap rapping. She's not trying to flex her skills. It's not like she's actually trying to show herself off as a rapper. But I think it's pretty interesting the way the glitchy guitar stuff. There's guitar stuff mixed with dance beats, which she did the same thing on Ray of Light. I think the fact that the singles didn't work is one of the reasons why people think this album is a failure because it was did end her sort of commercial run to a certain extent. But I don't think it's a bad album. I actually think it's a pretty cool album. I spent some time with it. And I really think it's actually worth it. I'm actually glad your list actually made me spend... <laughs> time again with this album if i had to say what's the best album on your list of of horrible albums it's this one this is the best of the horrible albums Feel otherwise and that's okay (laughs)
0: that's very fair a lot of people felt what you are saying now and that is fair i didn't mean to inflame the madonna fan community i apologize to them in my mind i played it i didn't like it
1: yeah and i think that's fair and she definitely strains for things she's not capable of, which, which often is an absolute hallmark of what makes things deserve to be on this list. Uh, she's definitely straining towards weird experimental shit, but it happens, It also it just happens to be sonically a really cool album. It's a great headphones album. It's a cool album. So okay. thank you for making me listen to it. Uh, uh, I did my job then. You did your job, exactly. And number 25, and I think we're going to end there. We'll return to this list at a future point. Soon, I'm sure. Number 25 is Neil Young's Fork in the Road. And it, it is interesting how many times how <laughs> shitty the album is. The album cover seems to be a random Polaroid taken of Neil looking in a camera or maybe even a selfie if they had such a thing in 2009. But... It's a really half-assed album cover and a really half-assed album. I guess Neil has always had a thing for lyrical literalism to a certain extent, although sometimes he'll take off in the most beautiful metaphors and something like Thrasher, but Sometimes he's just very literal. Long May You Run is about a car and so is every fucking song on this album. is about this electric car he made and about the sort of the situation of gas cars and it's mind numbing, it's literal. It's not long after he made the album with Let's impeach the president, which was another one that had just very literal and boring. He's making these message albums. It's really bad.
0: Yeah, it was tough picking his worst album. It's partially because I'm a super fan, I love Neil Young, he's almost my favorite artist. But the past 25 years, there's a lot of records that are supremely half-assed, where the lyrics feel more important to him than the actual music. And at this moment, he really thought that he was going to create a car that would change the world, that would end the combustion engine, and you would plug it into your house at the end of the day, and it will power your house. He really thought that he was going to make Tesla. And every single song on this record is about that process. And it's just, its a, it was a great idea. I applaud him for it. But just musically, just my God, it's just one song that's after another that's boring. She looks so beautiful with the top down. Let's jump inside and take... On the same subject.
1: She loves
0: yeah just so doesn't work.
1: You brought up this infamous Madison Square Garden concert where he played what felt like half the album was it even before the album even came out possibly? it was
0: months before the album came out. He just <laughs> recorded it so it was fresh in his mind. He always does this thing. He did it with Greendale and a ton of others. He plays the record before it comes out because it's really fresh in his brain. He's psyched about it. Then when the album's out, he is done with it. And so this, he's playing The Gardens. It's a huge show. With Wilco, he plays most of the record and an outtake. It was over an hour of the concert. And I vividly remember there are people falling asleep because it was just one after the other. And it was ballsy, but oh my God.
1: It was, I love Neil Young just about as much as you do. He is one of my top artists. He also is capable of just torturing audiences with weird concerts and weird albums when he feels like it. And you look at the sunlessness, oh, he actually played a, like, a lot of classics that night. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, he, he played some of his best songs. He played Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere and Powderfinger and Cortez the Killer and Cinnamon Girl. And yet, because the middle, the needle and the damaged dump but because the middle of the concert was taken up by so many of these songs that no one had ever heard before that were also very bad. It's all you remember. It was just. It's just a brutal. I think he did. There's one point he did. I think four in a row,
0: and five even. That, yeah,
1: yeah. And it's just app. It was. It and he lost the audience. He lost the entire audience. He was standing in front of an arena who none of whom none of the people in the arena were enjoying what he was doing they didn't care and they <laughs> yeah. kept and he probably punished us with a bunch of extra so the less energy we gave back the probably more he hit us with yeah. but that was yeah it's so perverse and yet still better than the greendale concert i saw i think anyway that's a actually weirdest concerts is another podcast but that's a whole other story but anyway yeah. there's 24 more of those to go we'll return to it at a future point and definitely check out andy's list and i've Taking the part of the entire internet, arguing with Andy. That's what these lists are good for. 50 genuinely horrible albums by brilliant artists. Andy, thanks for taking the time. Sure, I'll see you next time. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.